Uh, could I please ask you um, to sit down? We have a very limited amount of time, and uh, so I want to get started because we have from 11.45 to 12.45, and I want to allow our speaker enough time to speak, and then depending if we have time, we'll have uh, a Q&A for a while, okay? Uh, I'd like to welcome you to this presidential panel, and in particular, I'd like to welcome our speaker, Karen Armstrong. Karen is one of the world's foremost scholars, writers, and commentators on religious history and culture. She's been a trailblazer in the field of comparative religion. And th those of you who know her writings know that she really works her way across multiple uh, religious traditions. Among her best-selling books are History of God, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, The Bible, A Biography, and Profiles of Buddha and Muhammad. She has a new book that'll be coming out called Religion and Violence, and she said that if I announced it, I would get 5% of her royalties. So, um, but she never delivers. I've done this before. Okay, um, in 2008, <clears throat> excuse me, Karen was awarded the TED Prize, which recognized her contributions to the public's understanding of religion and support for her vision to create a charter of compassion, a document that urges people all over the world to embrace the values of the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and commit to actionable service projects that help foster those values in their communities. And I'm going to leave it to Karen to talk more about the project. She's a trustee of the British Museum and a fellow of the Royal Academy of Literature, and has addressed members of the U.S. Congress on three occasions, lectured to policymakers at state and defense, participated in the World Economic Forum, and addressed the Council on Foreign Relations a recipient of numerous awards and honorary degrees, including four Freedoms, excuse me, four Freedoms Medal for Freedom of Worship by the Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt Institute, and was the first foreigner to ever receive the Al-Azhar Medal for Services to Islam. She spoke at Georgetown recently, and they announced her honorary doctorates, and of course left out the fact that she has an honorary doctor from Georgetown University. Karen. Thank you, John. It's a, gr it's a great honor for me to speak to you today, in the, you, you in the Academy, uh, who have helped me so much in my work, uh, because I am an amateur. Um, I've no PhD, I've no degree in religion, I'm entirely self-taught. But amateur, as I don't need to remind this learned audience, means one who loves. And for me to say that I love my work is an extraordinary thing, because um, I, I, the, I wanted uh, at one time to have nothing to do with religion ever again. Um, I limped away from a difficult religious experience as a young woman, rather bruised, and, um, um, and, and, and thought that I wanted, to be, I wanted to be like you. I wanted to be an academic, but in a different field in English literature. And after a series of career disasters, I found myself um, making television programs and gradually learning more about religion. And there was um, a turning point um, in my life when I was reading um, Marshall G.S. Hodgson's uh, three-volume History of Islam. 
And in a footnote, a lengthy footnote, um, I found uh, Hodgson uh, drawing the reader's attention to Louis Massignon's Science of Compassion. Science not in the sense of physics or chemistry, of course, uh, but it's uh, scientia, knowledge, uh, a form of knowledge that comes from compassion, uh, which means to feel with others. And uh, Massignon said that the historian of religion could not uh, look at the spiritualities of the past from the vantage point of post-enlightenment rationalism. You had to uh, create, in a scholarly manner, a deep understanding of the context in which these spiritualities emerged, looking at the intellectual currents, the economic currents, the political uh, events of the time, um, and not leave this spirituality until you could imagine yourself in similar circumstances feeling the same. Compathane, compassion to feel with the other. In this way, Massignon said, uh, you will broaden your horizons and make a place for the other in your mind and heart. And I found that this entirely transformed uh, my view of religion. Um, I, I had been doing precisely uh, what uh, Massignon said don't do, looking at it from the point of view of uh, post-enlightenment rationalism, saying, well, all this is clearly rubbish. My early works were really dismissive and uh, rather Dawkins-esque. Um, and I, I, I don't allow them to be republished anymore. Um, but this, I found doors opened for me. Um, and um, I've, it also rubbed off on me personally um, because I, I became aware, very much aware of the aggression of so much contemporary discourse um, that where we condemn this, that, and the other, we have a feeling of great omniscience, that we, uh, this is the age of information, and people discourse uh, quite uh, aggressively on such subjects as Islam, uh, when really the amount of reliable information they have could be comfortably contained on the back of a small postcard. <laughs> and of course, this is dangerous for us today. We, and I would also, I've also found that we cannot look at some of the uh, philosophies or movement, religious movements of the present uh, from the vantage points, of, say, of safe life in the Western world. Uh, we have also to recreate the context in which these have developed so that we learn, uh, can say, that while we may deplore some of the actions that, the, the, these, that are taken, uh, we, can, we can see all the circumstances that have led up to such a movement and have fed into such a movement. Because if we want to change minds and hearts, uh, we have to know what is really in them and not what we think or assume might be in them. Um, so, um, I'm also, I've often been called a popularizer, and not in a uh, um, sort of complimentary way. Um, I make really uh, no apology for this. I rely on your profound scholarship. I use it all the time, but a lot of this 
uh, material is so important that I feel it can't be confined to the academy. Uh, we need, uh, say, a deeper understanding of Islam. Um, and I think our world is in such a plight at the moment that we all have to do what we can in our particular field to throw light on the darkness. Um, and uh, we, there is a sense of urgency. Um, and religion, of course, does many different things. Uh, it's not all about compassion. It's not all about violence either. It, 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 is, it is a multifaceted activity. But we all know that uh, compassion has been crucial and central uh, as to, as in part of humanity's spiritual journey. And that's what we need today. We remember uh, Hillel, the older contemporary of Jesus, who, when approached by a pagan who, pro uh, who promised to convert to Judaism if Hillel could recite the whole of the Torah while he stood on one leg, uh, replied, uh, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow human being. That is Torah, and everything else is only commentary. Go and study it. Deliberately provocative, but putting uh, the compassion right in the heart of, of, of spirituality is the test of true spirituality. And our world needs this today. Each one of the great world faiths has developed its own version of what's often called the golden rule, Hillel's version. Um, never treat others as you would not like to be treated yourself. Um, and said that that is central to true spirituality. And, but now I think it's not enough that we confine it to our private spiritual quest. We have now to apply it globally so that we ensure that in future we treat all peoples, whoever they are, as we would wish to be treated ourselves. And if we are unable to do this, I doubt that we'll have a viable world to hand on to the next generation. There's such a great imbalance of power and wealth and influence. Um, and, uh, and we've seen some of the consequences. Our world is profoundly interconnected. As, at the same time as we're so perilously divided, we are also linked together as never before in the global economy that we've created. So that when stocks go down in one part of the world, uh, the markets fall all around the world that day. Um, what happens in Afghanistan tomorrow or Pakistan can have repercussions in New York or London or Madrid tomorrow. We're all facing the same environmental catastrophe, and we are all linked together on the World Wide Web. Uh, and um, yet we still, our perceptions haven't caught up with this. Very often, in a, in, in a nice, safe place like Baltimore, we put ourselves in a sort of privileged, separate category and see trouble as some, some, something happening elsewhere. But we can no longer safely do that. Um, I'm, I speak as a British person, and uh, I often think to myself that uh, if we British had observed the golden rule in our colonies, treating all peoples as we would wish to be treated ourselves, we wouldn't be having so many political problems today. Um, and this, uh, this so, we, so there is an urgency 
in which um, the, the, any of us who can, in whatever field, speak to the present circumstances, I feel we must do so in terms that the public can understand. It's what John Esposito has been doing for years at his Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. Um, and um, so, so I'm not a, afraid of, of being a popularizer. Um, and one of the things we need to tell the world about is what compassion means, because I've found that people don't know what it is. Um, I gave a lecture a few years ago in Holland, and I specifically said that compassion does not mean feeling sorry for people. But every, in the Dutch translation of my speech in the newspaper the next morning, every time I said the word compassion, they translated it pity. Um, and in fact, they told me we really don't have a word for compassion. Uh, a, a really chilling thought. Um, so, uh, the, the golden rule requires us to look into our own hearts, discover what gives us pain, and then refuse under any circumstance to inflict that pain on anybody else. It requires you to dethrone yourself from the center of your world and put another there. And all the world faiths insist that you cannot confine your benevolence to your own group. You must have what one of the Chinese sages called Yan Ai, concern for everybody. Love the stranger, says Leviticus. L reach out to all tribes and nations, says the Quran. Um, love your enemies, said Jesus. Um, and <clears throat> so we need to get people, the compassion is hard. But it is the only way, I believe, for us to go forward as a species in a viable world. Um, there are different words for it. Our, our, our word compassion comes from the Greek and Latin word, uh, compassio, to feel with someone else, to endure something with something, somebody else, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And this is one of the reasons why um, the, uh, the, the exercise of compassion has been so central to spirituality because all the world traditions know that what holds us back from our best selves and from enlightenment is egotism, selfishness. And when I was a young nun, we did a lot of things to, to sort of trample on the ego, kissing the floor and uh, confessing our faults in public and kissing people's feet. Uh, was a complete waste of time as far as I'm concerned <laughs> because we became so fixated on our own performance that we became absolutely embedded in the ego that we were supposed to transcend. Whereas compassion demands that all day and every day, and here I quote Confucius, you put others first, uh, put yourself to one side. And that's what the science of compassion did for me at my desk because I had to put clever, over-educated Karen to one side uh, for hours at a time and enter into the minds of others living in vastly different circumstances, trying to open my mind to other people. Um, and it, uh, so it, 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 it's, uh, so that's our word. Uh, in um, Arabic and Hebrew, the word for compassion, Rahman, comes, uh, is related uh, to the womb, 
etymologically to the womb. And that brings up the whole image of mother love. And the icon of the mother and the child together is a universal symbol of humanity at its best and most caring and altruistic. But of course, mother love is hard. Um, a mother has to get up every night to her crying child, however exhausted she is. She has to put her own needs and desires and frustrations to one side and be responsible for that child at every second of the day, ready to leap forward to save it from putting its hand in an electric socket or pulling a boiling saucepan on its head, knowing where it is and being ready to leap to its rescue at any moment. But then that sweet little baby grows up and can become a horrible disappointment. <laughs> but, but the mother still doesn't give up, uh, sticks with that child. And uh, there's an early Buddhist prayer uh, attributed to the Buddha himself, which says, let us cherish all creatures as a mother her only child. All creatures, we have to give that degree of attention and concern. That's the Buddhist way, to take responsibility for the pain of the world. So when people accuse me of being a popularizer, um, I, I feel that actually our traditions, the traditions that we are studying, compel us to do this. The myths and the doctrines are all about precisely this. Um, to take responsibility for the pain of the world and to work practically for its alleviation. I mean, of course, there have been many great mystics and philosophers who have not been going out to the people, but some of the big ones, the big boys, have been men of action. Um, let's look at the Buddha, for example. The two myths that I think are very telling um, for us um, the first one, and this is a myth, uh, it, it, it's uh, deliberately, uh, sort of fict deliberately fictitious. There's a quite different account of the Buddha's decision to leave home and become a monk in the Pali scriptures. Uh, but this, is, this myth, like any myth, is telling people what to do to achieve their own enlightenment, to give a program for action in the present. And there's two myths that are, are, concern us here. Uh, first is uh, the Buddha's decision to leave home. And it's said that uh, when the Buddha was a baby, uh, the local priest uh, prophesied that this child would become a monk. He'd see four very disturbing things, and that, on that he'd feel compelled to give up the world and seek enlightenment, to find a, a, a cure to the world's pain. And the Buddha's father was not impressed with this career option for his son. He had more worldly hopes. So he in virtually incarcerated this child and this young man in a uh, sort of pleasure uh, palace and, uh, with wonderful grounds. And guards were posted all around the grounds to prevent any disturbing sights coming anywhere near this young man. Uh, and uh, Buddhism is an extremely psychological uh, religion. Um, and the, this image of the guarded uh, pleasure palace from which pain is excluded is a wonderful image of the mind in denial. 
that we all want to push suffering away. It could also be seen as an image of the groves of academe, perhaps, uh, where we, we, we can stay safely in, in, uh, in, uh, in, and have our high-minded conversations. Um, but the, the, it, it's a pointless quest because suffering always breaks in. One of the few things that uh, human beings all have in common is pain. We all suffer, and pain will always break in. And, and the gods got tired of watching uh, the young man uh, living in this fool's paradise and sent four of their number disguised as a sick man, an old man, a corpse, and a monk past the guards into the garden. And the Buddha was so shocked that he left home that very night to work practically to cure the world's pain. Um, and left the pleasure palace, left the groves of academe, and went out to help the suffering world. Um, but um, the other, first of all, the Buddha had to achieve uh, enlightenment. And the next story occurs after he'd achieved it. And he's sitting under his Bodhi tree. And his, uh, the thought occurs to him that perhaps he's just enjoying this wonderful bliss, this wonderful peace. Uh, and think the th inconvenient thought occurs to him that perhaps he should go and preach this message. And he says, no, no, this is going to be too hard. People don't want to lose their egos, which is what the me this method entails. It's going to be far too dispiriting for me. I don't want to do it. At which point, uh, the god Brahma in the highest heaven utters a terrible cry and says, then the world is lost. The world will be utterly lost. And he descends from his heaven, and you have the god kneeling before the enlightened man and saying, Lord, please preach your dharma. Look at the world. And uh, it's the Pali scriptures tell us that the, the Buddha, he looked at the world with the eye of a Buddha, a, an important phrase. The Buddha's not one lost in contemplation and peace, but who looks at a world in pain and is moved to assuage it. And instead of sitting under his Bodhi tree for the next 40 years, the Buddha and his entourage tramped through the uh, ground, Italy, the, 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 the villages and cities of India, uh, trying to help human beings at whatever level they were, monk or layman, uh, to achieve, to assuage the pain, to deal with the pain, the inevitable pain that comes with human life. And um, so Buddha, the contemplative, becomes a man of action. Um, and, and similarly, Jesus, continually tramping around the uh, villages of Galilee, practicing Yan'ai, going out to the people who are not necessarily very deserving, defying the establishment um, of his day, having dinner with all the wrong people, uh, the out people who are unclean or deemed to be sinners. Um, and... Uh, challenge, and, challenge, and, cha and taking up a political role. I mean, I'm not saying for one moment that the Buddha was about, that Jesus was about to lead an insurrection. That's, that's long been exploded. 
but certainly he is preoccupied with the imperial uh, rule of Rome in Galilee. Um, when he casts out the devil the, the, of, of the possessed man, and he says, what is your name? And the devil says, my name is Legion, the most clear uh, symbol of Roman occupation. And Jesus does what many colonized people would have liked to have done to the British, I suspect, uh, hurt, put them into a herd of pigs, the devils, and cast them into the sea. Um, <laughs> But this was, and this of course ended, uh, his defiance of authority ended in some way to his crucifixion. And one of the sayings that has come down to us that people who wanted to follow him, it's not enough to be locked in prayer uh, alone in peace and quiet. You have to be ready to take up that cross and take up the possibility of death. Um, and the prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, for years before the Quran began to come down to him, would spend the month of Ramadan on Mount Hira, just outside Mecca, in retreat, fasting and giving alms, and pondering deeply, uh, we are told, on the plight of his people, on the political circumstances of Arabia, on the political and uh, social problems developing in Mecca, which was uh, becoming a market economy and in an early capitalist phase. And um, uh, so uh, and thinking, thinking hard until finally the revelations come through. And this doesn't, once the revelations come, most unwelcomely, and in a frightening way at first, he is then embroiled and embarked on a dangerous political path, taking uh, the, uh, his ummah, his community, into an entirely different direction. Muslim, um, it's another going forth. The Buddha's leaving home is often called his going forth. Uh, the, uh, the Muslim era begins in 622 when the Muslim Muslims leave Mecca and make the hijra, the migration, to Medina. And this was not simply a change of address. It was an extraordinary step to take, to leave your own tribe, your own blood relations, and take up permanent residence with a, a, a foreign tribe was absolutely unheard of. We're in pre-Islamic Arabia, where the um, the tie of blood was the most sacred value of all, this was almost tantamount to blasphemy. And so the Muslim um, era begins with this moment of complete innovation, of going forth, going forward into the unknown, and leaving uh, the securities of what passes uh, of home. Uh, now, the, by my favorite um, image of the prophet is that the, his biographers tell us that when he received a revelation, he would often sweat profusely, even on a cold day. He would shake, uh, he would go gray. Uh, and it reminds us, it's a salutary reminder of the difficulty of speaking the word of God in a violent, uh, unstable world. 
And we are now, that so many people are saying, well, God wills this and God wills that very glibly. We need to go back to that image of Muhammad, peace be upon him, sweating with the effort of bringing uh, a, a political and spiritual, uh, the two were utterly combined, uh, solution for his people. Um, I was asked in um, a meet, and we need to do that now. We need to, uh, to put that same effort in, that same sweating with the effort to perhaps break with past certainties and look for a solution to the immense troubles of our world before we lose it altogether. I did an interview for Jordanian television and uh, they, they, they asked me very innovative questions and one of them said, if there were a whole lot of people in front of you, um, uh, how would you pick out the prophet, peace be upon him? How would you know that this one was Muhammad? And I thought for a while, and I said I would ask them how he would, uh, how they would find, cure the world's pain. And I'd look at them, and the prophet would be the one who would be sweating. The, the sweating, the, the, the immense effort uh, involving his body and soul uh, to try to find a solution. And that's the, the image for us today. Now, Confucius, uh, one of uh, my great favorite sages, too, um, was also deeply political. Uh, he said that we had to practice the golden rule all day and every day. We have a saying in Britain when we've done something nice for somebody. Well, that's my good deed for the day, as though we could then return for the next 23 hours to the, our usual habits of greed and unkindness and bitterness and selfishness. But no, all day and every day, putting yourself to one side. But this, he, he was, this was not just a personal ethic. It was a political effort, too. Uh, these sages that we're talking about were not living in happy, peaceful times on mountain groves or, or, or um, universities. They were living in violent and turbulent societies like our own, where violence had reached an unprecedented crescendo. And China was about to embark on the terrible period known as the Warring States period, when for over 200 years, the Chinese states fought one another with appalling loss of life until only one was left and that formed the uh, Chinese empire. Um, and Confucius is already beginning to see this and all the Chinese sages are preoccupied by it and are convinced that unless we learn to treat other states as we would wish to be treated ourselves, there's not going to be, uh, we'll destroy each other. And those words are never more true than they are today. Um, and he, with his small band of disciples, he'd wanted a political career for himself, but he never got it. And he was always felt a failure for that reason. But with his small band of pupils, devoted pupils, he would go from one of the principalities in uh, the Chinese plain after another uh, to try to get them to, to, to rule according to the golden rule. Master, said one of his uh, disciples, uh, what, how can we apply this to politics? It's quite simple, Confucius replied. And now th listen to this and apply it to our own global world. 
you seek to establish yourself, then seek to establish others. You seek to turn your merits into account, then make sure that others also have the chance to turn their merits to account. We, instead of just looking for our own um, advantage, our own uh, sh short-term, perhaps, economic or strategic interest, it is really more in our interest to make sure that every nation, however poor and desperate, has the chance to turn its merits to account and uh, to establish itself. And then he continues, Confucius, never treat others as you would not like to be treated yourselves. He said, when you go among the mean, that is the, the vast masses of the poor, the peasants, whom the Chinese aristocracy, of whom Confucius was one, took no notice at all. Uh, when you go among the mean, perhaps the common people, um, behave as if you were in the presence of uh, an important guest. Uh, the whole of Confucius's spirituality can be summed up in reverence. We need to revere other people, however hopeless they are. There's so often slighting remarks made in the media about certain peoples, certain ethnicities, certain nations, uh, can't do democracy, you know, uh, Arab revolutions failed, uh, hopelessly uneconomic. Uh, this is not treating people with reverence. In the Chinese system of, of ritual, every, in Confucius's world, everybody had to bestow a degree of absolute reverence on some member of the family or the group. And he, in return, would receive a similar measure of absolute respect. And he had seen, he saw that this that when people are treated with reverence, they become worthy of it. They, uh, and this, too, is, is, is a message for us. Um, so, but of course, the trouble is that Confucius, in his lifetime, never managed to persuade a ruler. And shortly before the end of the Warring States period, one of his uh, great Confucian uh, followers, Sunzi, visited the state of Qin, which would become the victorious uh, uh, state at the end and would found the Chinese empire. And he said, well, why don't you have any Confucians in your government? And the king said, because the Confucians are no good at running a state. And this is the endless difficulty with religion. Jesus, for example, gets crucified. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the dynamic of the state is inherently violent and self-interested, especially the nation state. Uh, treating other people with reverence isn't always a thing that uh, governments go in for. Um, and, the, and, and the whole dynamic of keeping a state going, no government can afford to disband its armies, however peace-loving it may say it is. And all civilization has, from the very beginning, meant the suppression of vast num numbers of the population. And the, the, one, the dilemma of the Muslims was with the ethic of the Quran, this egalitarian ethic of the Quran, they have to become an empire because that's the only form of viable state in those uh, pre-modern days that assures a measure of peace with the same uh, 
problems of inequality. And that's what causes the Muslims to create uh, Shiism or Sufism or, and, and Fiqh uh, to try to counter uh, this, this imperial uh, aggression. So, but the, what they can do, it's not hopeless, because what all these people have done is create alternatives. The Buddhist, the Buddhist Sangha, for example. Uh, the Buddha would uh, created a community of monks uh, in, which the, um, in which everybody had to live together peaceably, and this was essential to their enlightenment, because if you have ever lived in a religious community, uh, you know how difficult it is. You're continually rubbing up against uh, people who are not particularly congenial and people you haven't chosen to live with, and this chips away at that selfishness. Um, and one of his friends and patrons was King Pasenadi. And he used to, he loved to come in, and he said, so often when I go to communes of monks, they're all looking miserable and disgruntled. But the monks here are so cheerful and healthy and happy. And he said, at court, um, it's all, everybody's jostling for power. Uh, nobody listens to everybody else. Uh, even when I speak, I'm heckled. But here I see the monks, and here I quote, living together as uncontentiously as milk with water and smiling at one another with the eyes of wild deer. An alternative that it is possible to live together uh, in, a, in a more peaceful way. Um, similarly, um, uh, the Confucians in China, eventually in the Chinese empire, were always part of the government. Right up until 1912, they were, they, a Confucian presence was at the heart of government. It could not counter the aggression of the military and the, uh, the, go, of, of, of the militant em, empire, uh, but it could, it, it, it could, but it offered a continual witness that there was another way to live, and that, um, and that the Confucians, some of them were executed by, because they insisted on a more compassionate rule in, in China. So that presence was there. Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom, was telling his followers to behave as if the kingdom of God was already alive. And this would be a place where people would uh, love one another, forgive their enemies, uh, uh, share their goods equally. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer of peas for peasants, deprived people. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, hope for subsistence, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Uh, uh, huge indebtedness problems in uh, Roman uh, Palestine. People on the road, thrown off the land, uh, and, and this would be a, a, an alternative community to bring the kingdom nearer. And the Ummah, too, in the middle of, um, of, of, of expansive, capitalistic Mecca, the Prophet, peace be upon him, founded a community where people shared what they had, gave alms instead of grabbing all their wealth and, and creating uh, a, private wealth, a private fortune for themselves. And um, instead of... Um, and, and, and instead of... Um, 
preening and prancing and strutting around in the way that the Quran describes the Meccan grandees. Um, the, they bow in prayer, prostrating themselves on the ground um, in a, an attitude that the, the, the Meccan establishment were appalled at. Uh, Arabs did not approve of kingship, and it seemed demeaning to them to grovel on the ground like a slave. Uh, but the posture of the body was teaching the Muslims at a level deeper than the rational what was required in that act of Islam, of surrender of the ego to God, uh, and deflecting away from that prancing, preening ego that's constantly drawing attention to itself. Well, I'm going to stop now for, so that we have a little time for questions, but to leave us with an, another quote from Confucius. Virt virtue does not exist in isolation. We need neighbors. Uh, we ha Confucius wouldn't have understood about people wanting to go off into the forest. He felt we needed one another to make one another human, and, uh, and, and by learning to behave with reverence to others, we perfected and enhanced our humanity. You couldn't do this in the, in the desert on your own. And we are now in that situation too. We are living in a global world, and these, these neighbors we have are neighbors. They're not people in the distant realms of uh, darkest Africa. They are our neighbors, and we will save ourselves only if we ensure uh, that we treat them as we wish to be treated ourselves, uh, enable them to establish themselves as we have established ourselves. And when we're in their presence and when we speak of them, to behave as if we're in the presence of an important guest. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, and now we can go to some questions. Uh, if you would come to the mic, if you would identify yourself, you, you know, your name, your association, whatever. Uh, my name is Stephen Kern. I'm a history professor at Ohio State University. Uh, I teach Nietzsche, so my question is about individualism. And I wondered how you uh, reconcile the impulse that people have to, for excellence, for greatness, for competition, not just in politics, where it becomes angry, but say in a music academy, where people are striving to achieve greatness. How do you reconcile that? Yeah. Okay, yes, yes it is. Yeah, individualism, it, it's, it's great, uh, but um, there is an aggression in it. And there's yes. a, and there's a, there, and similarly competitiveness. It means that if I succeed, others must fail. Not everybody can succeed. And it, it, it infuses the way we speak to one another and the way we speak of one another so that it's not enough for us now to seek the truth. We have to defeat and humiliate our opponents, whether that's in uh, politics or in the law courts uh, or in academia. Now, that's not the way to become a great violinist, to defeat your opponents. It's to work no. hard and do your exercises exactly. and to achieve excellence. And you see, excellence is great. And, our, and you're talking about a violinist. Um, which it, and, and, and I don't think you could ever be a great artist if you are entirely egotistic. 
I think you can become, uh, you know, there's always the great danger of becoming a prima donna in that, in that sense. Yes. Or, or the problems that happen to film, you know, film stars and rock stars that go off the rails and with all this. Uh, there has to be that profound humility, I think, if you're going to succeed in art and in scholarship, I would have thought. Because the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. And that therefore, uh, there's the, unless there is this humility uh, and um, a, a sense of, of one's good fortune even, the extraordinary privilege of being able to having the ability to strive for excellence, that is a privilege that is denied to vast swathes of the human race. And this is one of the dilemmas of civilization, and I'm and I, dealing it with it with my new book in a bit, that civilized, the civilized arts and sciences uh, were only possible in a system that oppressed 90% of the population. Um, and it's that it, 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 and, and people wrestled with this, and it seemed the only way to create the, it, the, the oppression of the masses in, in the, an agrarian empire that depended upon the labor of peasants who had their surplus taken from them, um, enabled the, uh, created a privileged class, a leisured class, that had the ability to become a violinist or a scholar. So uh, and this is the dilemma of civilization, the dilemma of the state, and perhaps the dilemma of our world. But I think the antidote is always beware of ego, because that'll ruin. When, when somebody is simply writing about him or herself, it's usually pretty poor writing. Um, if you're just doing it to inflate yourself, I think it doesn't get good anymore. Remember the privilege that you have. Remember the humility. Uh, and uh, try, lose yourself in your violin playing. Okay, I agree uh, there. How, uh, how many graduate students do we have here? Could you raise your hand? Okay, I just want to reassure you that you're lucky. You've chosen a path where there will be no competitiveness. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I want you to think about that as you have your deeper experiences on your way to tenure and beyond. Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, my name is Brian Palmer, Uppsala University in Sweden. To what degree is the price of radical compassion uh, usually suffering, self-sacrifice, martyrdom? I think of how many of the people we see as um, beacons of compassion, from Malala Yousafzai to Sophie Scholl making pamphlets against the Nazis from uh, within Germany have, have paid with, by taking bullets, by, by being executed, um, is, is self-sacrifice seen as, as the price of radical compassion across traditions, or are there different ways of treating that problem? I think it, it depends on the tradition. Uh, it's sacrifice in, in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition is... is uh, is a motif, and in, in, in human sacrifice to the, one has the image of Jesus, of course, to there, uh, but not so much in others. But the the point about the ego, uh, self sacrifice, giving up yourself for others, uh, putting yours others first, 
That's not something you can just do. I, I often wonder what I would have been like in Nazi Germany, say. I think it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. What, you know, what would we have done? The question is, I don't think we probably know. And a lot of it will depend on the way we've been living before. Um, it's no good. It, 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 people are enabled to do this because over the years, I think, they acquire that the, the spiritual strength by what Wordsworth called countless, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love, of small acts of self-sacrifice, making a habit of putting others before yourself, and calling out for justice. I think, you know, what we, we need to, to develop a, a way of criticizing um, injustice and cruelty when we see it that is not triumphalist. Um, you know, I take St. Paul's uh, hymn to charity as a kind of checklist for myself sometimes. Charity is patient, is kind. It's not puffed up. Sometimes when people are inveighing against a particular abuse, you can almost see them swelling with delighted self-congratulation or a sense of righteousness. And it takes no delight in the wrongdoing of others. Uh, but we have to speak clearly and calmly, and in the end be prepared to die, I think, yes, uh, for justice, uh, to end cruelty, to end oppression. Um, and, but we can only do that if we train ourselves now in good times. We have a very limited period of time, so could I ask the people who are asking questions to be succinct in asking a question? And I'll try to be succinct to it by us. Yes, thank you so much. My name is Maiju Lehmiöki Gardner. I'm from Finland and from Baltimore. My question concerns in particular your charter for compassion. Mm -hmm. If you would uh, get uh, to that in terms of elaborating on these concepts and then in particular on the question of disparities that is an important for charter for compassion. Sorry, but, I, I, could you just go a little more slowly? Yeah, charter for compassion in particular looks at disparities and a rising concern between disparities between social groups and the wealthy and and the poor, and I wonder if that and how you apply your principle to the particular question of our time in terms of economic disparities. Yes, indeed. I mean, and this is a huge challenge. Why don't you say, read my book? Before yes, you I, yeah, and Charter for <laughs> Compassion is all about that. It, well, yeah. the charter is, but also there's 12 steps to a compassionate life, which yeah. goes into it. But we are doing, uh, we're, we're creating a network of cities of compassion where people have to put it into practice in their own city. Uh, practically, not just have a love-in. Um, and uh, in Pakistan, particularly, uh, there's a concentration on education, creating a network of compassionate schools uh, where uh, compassion is brought into the curriculum. Um, and where compassionate, some people are creating compassionate hospitals and compassionate clinics. We have to begin with, and now we're at, at the stage where we're beginning to create um, a global um, director's board, because we've now, it, we've now got hubs in different parts of the world, some of which are disadvantaged parts of the world, so that it's not all centered in the United States. Right here. My name is Prana de Comtois. I'm a writer. Um, I hear you calling us to action, practical and pragmatic ways, and I think I heard in your talk a seed idea which... Uh, you said that there were people 
Confucians on the political, in the political state that remained as reminders and visionaries, even though we can't dismantle the need for protecting the state. So um, did I hear that right, that this is a seed concept where we could have uh, academia, intelligence, religious people advising government, advising in politics, advising locally and globally? It would be great. Um, the, uh, in China, they, they, did, they instituted this because they found it essential because of their particularly tragic history of coming with extreme violence to an imperial state. Now, of course, Confucianism is, is virtually dead in China. So how do we do that? Is it a call from the people? Are I, yes, I think, look, politicians are not going to say, I know, what a great idea. Let's bring in a whole lot of religious advisors to make us be more... So I don't think that's going to happen. But it will happen if... At, if, if at a grassroots level, people start to demand it and campaign for it and outline in practical ways how this could work. You by, said, repeat that again? Sorry? You said in practical ways what? Practical uh, and financial ways of making it work. Did you say you have a vision for that? Have I got a vision yes. for that? Not as yet. I mean, of course, uh, no. I'm, I, I, I'm just going from day to day trying to write my own books. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> And, and, and manage the charter, but uh, this would be a great idea. So, if you'd want to get in touch with us, uh, I'll, we can I'll come up explore it. Okay, thanks. Great. Yes, hi, my name is uh, Juan Nieves. I'm from New Jersey, and uh, I'm actually looking to go into social business um, as a means of extending compassion. Um, and I'm wondering if, uh, in your travels and in uh, your discussions, have you seen compassion? Um, at the heart of large organizations, like let's say corporations, well, and, and uh, if I may, um, do you have any ideas as to how we can become compassionate through large organizations? Well, actually, the people who've come forward to help me most have been businessmen uh, rather than religious leaders. Um, and uh, in Pakistan, an extraordinary uh, young businessman uh, who should, I think, one day get the Nobel Prize uh, for, or his peace work with India, uh, has, uh, is, is masterminding these compassionate schools. Um, and there, there's great interest in this in the business world because uh, they tell me, these businessmen, that they looked into the abyss of 2008 and saw what happened when selfishness and greed ran amok and that it's bad for business. Um, now, when, in Seattle, when we first approached... Um, the, the president of Starbucks, he said, don't give me this rubbish. But a year later, he was sitting beside me on the podium talking about compassion, about how this is the only way now forward to run viable business. So, and I think there are learned people in Harvard, indeed, doing, doing some work on, on all this. So this, there is, uh, if that's what the field you want to go into, I think it's quite a ripening and developing field. Unfortunately, we can take one quick question and one quick answer because the we got to move. Yeah. You mentioned uh, oh, this is James Van Pelt from Yale Divinity School. You mentioned uh, that uh, Confucius was able to look at the present circumstances and project them and more or less predict or foresee what was going to unfold in the war in the uh, warring period. And um, I wondered whether there were other great spiritual figures uh, who were able at their time to see what was happening with humanity in general and project ahead and foresee where we are today 
where humanity has you know, virtually exhausted the planet and is facing catastrophe? Uh, well, I think the quick answer to that is read my forthcoming book. Um, I, I, I am trying to explore some, some of this. Of course, I, I wasn't seeing that Confucius had a sort of clear vision of what was going on. I, I, I'm sorry if I gave that impression. What, but I think just as most many of us today look at the state of the world and have a dreadful foreboding, I think that was the sort of visionary, onward-looking sense of foreboding and a feeling of urgency that we must act to do something about it. That has cons the prophets of Israel were doing the same. Muhammad, peace be upon him, doing the same. Um, so uh, there have been these, these, these visionaries, and, and they've been often made the world a better place. Uh, but there's always these other very powerful drives, economic drives, military drives, nationalistic drives we have now uh, that militate against all that, and greed. I would point out, uh, as we move to the end, that um, the uh, theme of, uh, uh, of my presidency is public understanding of religion. And Karen is the first of the plenary speakers. Uh, Diana Eck will be speaking here at 8.30 tonight. Tomorrow at 5 p.m. there will be a uh, program called Scholar Activists, How Are They Making a Difference in the Public Square? And there will be a program on uh, Monday on uh, public understanding of religion and religion and pluralism. Um, I would mention my presiden presidential address, but you won't have to worry about remembering that. Uh, that will be tomorrow at 11.45 here. Uh, all 10,000 people who are attending will be receiving a wake-up call tomorrow <laughs> in which they will get two bits of information. The weather, which they say the wind chill factor will make 18 degrees, and the other will be, don't forget to attend John Esposito's <laughs> presidential address. Um, I'd like to thank Karen for, as usual, a very thoughtful and thought-provoking presentation. Thank you. Thank you.